Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. Hello, darkness, my old friend. It's time to fall back again. And though I will miss the light, the sun shining warm and bright, and driving without high beams in my face, who's to blame for daylight savings? Hello and welcome to Whining About Herstory, proudly broadcasting from the realm of darkness where two besties with breasties whine about women from history that you haven't heard of, but deaf should have at night. That was beautiful. <laughs> I thought I started thinking about it on my way over here because nice. I was just like, it's so fucking dark. It really is. And I almost like I turned on my turn signal way too early because I'm like, oh, yeah, the turn's here. Oh no, it's further down, but I can't see anything. I can't tell where anything is because it's dark as fuck and there are blue LED high beams constantly in my eyes and I'm about to road rage on someone's ass. Wow. So of course my brain turned to Simon and Garfunkel. Yep. As oh one God. I'm sorry, does. My eye is itching. Oh, you got to Oh my god, your puppy finally went to sleep. Zana has finally found peace. She's like, fine, I will stop raging. I will stop raging and I will curl up on this soft pillow and nap in my assless jammies. I think it helped that I like took her off the chair and put her on the pillow instead yeah. of just putting the pillow there for her to like crawl onto herself like, you know, a normal dog. I love that even though she's like a fully functional, independent living being, she's still basically a potato. Yeah, she's like... <laughs> How do she, I do things for myself? She needs to be set in a specific position with specific accessories to finally be like, okay, I accept this. <laughs> oh, my God. Makes me think of me when I'm drunk. You can just, like, put me somewhere and I won't move. Can I just say? Like, it takes, I have to be a certain level of drunk. Yeah. But once I hit that, like, you really can. You can just set me somewhere and I won't move. The One of the... I, I won't say this is one of the best feelings, but it's a really good feeling when you're drunk and you're not so drunk that you're going to be sick, but you're drunk where you're like, I'm yeah. tired. I just want to go to bed. And then you can go to bed. And you just like lay down. There's that like sheer moment of peace. Yeah. Where you're like, oh. You're like, I'm here and I don't have to fucking do anything. And this is fantastic. Yeah. No, that, that's yeah. one of the best things about hosting like a party at your own place. Except if you're hosting, you have to wait for everyone to leave. Yeah. That's like, the worst part of it. There's something really wonderful place. about be- getting drunk and then being like, peace out, bitches, I'm going to bed. And then just going to bed. Yeah. I've done that, like, for our New Year's party where mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, like, you're staying here, you're staying here, you're staying here. Which- whichever one of you goes to bed last, lock the front door. I have I'm also going done to that bed. for your New Year's party yeah. when I lived here. Yeah. It was a good feeling. It was it a was. good place to usually, be. It's usually Drew. I'm like, Drew, I know you're going to be up for a while. Lock the door whenever Drew never leaves. goes to bed. He stayed up and watched Pokemon with us yeah. until like 3 a.m. after. And then you left because you weren't living with us yet. Yeah, yeah. I It took me, it, it was like 3 or 4 in the morning. Drew eventually, like, Drew did sleep over that night. But yeah, he was still up with yeah. us for most of it. Because that bitch was feeding us Goldschlager. Yeah, right. No, and rum, rum chata. chata. 
It was both. Both. Both was not good. (laughs) I used that line earlier when we we took the dogs to the vet this morning, and Zana, like, had to stand. Like, she was sitting on my leg, but she had her front paws on Justin. And I was like, you know what she's thinking right now? And Justin's like, what? I'm like, both. Both Both is is good. good. Yes. And Justin's like, yeah, she is. I love that he's not even like, God damn it, Kelly. He's like, Yep, this is exactly what I expect from my wife after. Oh no, 10 when plus I sh- when marriage. I when I showed that movie to my niece, he was right there watching it with us. Good for him. Yeah. You got a good in. He knows. So Kelly, yeah. what are we drinking today? We are drinking so I uh my hu- I- my lovely husband, who we were just speaking of, um, bought me Around the world in 24 wines. Although I have a lot of judgments about this box of wines because it says around the world in 24 wines, but it's like five countries plus like two or three other ones. It's Fra- in 24 it's wines. France, Spain, Italy. I think there's and then Ar- also Hungary and, Ru- and Romania. Yeah. And I was like, mm, it's not really around the world. It's just like Europe in 24 It's like wines. a delightful sampling of European sections yeah. of the world and also the European countries that you definitely expect. Yeah, and some of them you didn't, which I'm excited. There's like a few South African wines in there too, which I'm pretty excited about. But oh, as like I the was, Emily wine. Yeah, yeah, as I was pulling out bottles of wine to find one that would be appropriate for today's episode. This one's maybe not appropriate for today's episode, but it's appropriate for Emily because it's it's called Once Upon a Time, and the picture is a chihuahua in, like... Um, Aviator goggles? I was going to say, like, motorcycle goggles. Oh, yeah. Like, hot pink motorcycle goggles, and it's a rosé from France. The only thing that would make it more Emily if it, is if it was a cab sauv. <laughs> this is true. These are facts. But I saw the chihuahua, and I was like, okay, this is the wine we're drinking. Also, we used to watch Once Upon a Time together yeah. constantly. So it says... The sunny slopes of southern France are blessed with a perfect climate for wine growing, where vineyards are refreshed by sea breezes and the famous mistral wind. The citrus fruit, lavender, and chaparral are all present in the finished wine, a true extension of time, place, and tradition. What's a chaparral? I don't know. I, I You know, it, it's French, so I bet it's chaparral. I assume it's some kind of, like... Flavor, fruit, plant is what I was going to go with. It could be a shoe too, because we we drink wines that are like tastes like leather shoe. Type of wine, like a variety. It's a shrubland plant, usually found in California, but apparently also in France. The south of France has everything. Also, I kind of just want to use chaparral, like I know what it means, Mm. and be like, oh. How chaparral of it all, you know, like, like other people are going to feel stupid because I'm using it very casually and they're like, I don't know what that means, but from context, I'm going to try and figure it out and I'm going to assume she knows what she's talking about. I'm really trying to embrace that mediocre white man energy where I just pretend to know things and then snap at my dog. Sorry, she's trying <laughs> to get okay. garbage. She's trying to get to the cheese its box. <laughs> Yeah, she is. She's such so a, naughty. She's such a pill. But well, yes. she's not the baby anymore. So naturally, she has to act out. I mean, she acted out even when she was the baby. Well, now she's acting out for different reasons. Better right there. Lay down. But she's not peeing on pizza boxes because I'm not picking her up and taking her outside. Yeah. And she kind of knows who I am now. Kind of. Now she, she still barks at you. Now she doesn't hate me out of fear. She hates me because she knows me. <laughs> 
now. She's looking at my toes. It's a very comfortable place to be. So what are we cheersing to? Uh, cheers to falling back and my thin grasp of time and space becoming even thinner and more tenuous. And the dark. Even more chaparral than before. <laughs> it's a shrub. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, it's like really mellow at first, but then there's like a light sharpness to it. Well, there's like a light crest of flavor. It's like lazy waves along the banks of a river or a a, a lake. Yeah. Where, you know, it's just kind of the standard like whooshing in and out. It's really refreshing, though. So I was um I was talking with my old boss, um, you know, a million years ago, and he was talking about going to France and how eating out in France is an entirely different experience because in the United States, we are so go, 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 go that we like drive throughs, we're in and out. We literally have stores called the in and out, the get in, get out, the get the fuck out right now. Yeah, Why'd you we're, even come we're in very, here? We're a very quick society. Exactly. But in France, they prioritize the social experience of dining. And actually, I was doing my, um, my like food tracker app and they were talking about you know how even though in France they eat a lot more like carbs and cheeses and what you know they prioritize some foods that we would consider unhealthy they tend to be healthier because they eat less of that because they prioritize the social aspect Mm -hmm. of dining so you go into a restaurant you don't just be like hey give me the check I'm done they're like the fuck are you talking about you just got here an hour ago and I love yeah, l- lunch is like a two hour yeah. process. And honestly, socially, culturally, I love that. But if I'm visiting France, I'm a go, go, go. Because it's hard to get out of this country. And I right. got to fucking move. <laughs> One day we will go to the south of France. Together. Oh, my God. I'm just going to sit on a beach. I'm just going to sit on wine. a beach. I'm going to I'm going to take like an old prescription bottle scoop up some sand from a beach and just like have it in there and take it home with me and then every time I'm like I'm depressed just take a <laughs> of the south of France mm, that's good stuff <sighs> that'd be funny uh, it's... <laughs> no, we tell me you have, have a drug problem without telling me you have a drug problem <laughs> tell me you have a south of France problem. oh my god it just I kind of I like obviously it's like also very elitist mm-hmm but I kind of miss the days when they told you to take a vacation for your health. Like if I could to get the a south doc- of France, yeah. If I could get a doctor's note for that kind of shit, I would be so happy. I wouldn't mind going in debt for mm. medical costs. Right? Neither would I. God, I my my whole goal at the beginning of this year was to not go to the doctor at all. So all I had to do is just pay for insurance. End up having going it twice, like at the very beginning of the year. And I just finished paying all that off with like the minimum monthly payments, Mm -hmm. like which were still a lot. It wasn't like two bucks, you know. So 2024, maybe it'll be my year where I actually just ignore all of my health problems. Yeah. Yep. It's not that I'm not going to have any. It's that I'm just going to let them fester. Until it becomes an emergency. (laughs) And then I'm going to call John Oliver to forgive my medical debt. Because medical debt is a fucking scam. Yeah. Yep. 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 I wish I could buy my own medical debt. 
and just forgive it. That'd be nice. Because you can buy it for like pennies on the dollar for what it is. Yeah. <sighs> the wheels are, the rusty, gummed up wheels are turning slowly and inefficiently, but they are in motion. <laughs> anyway. Let me know how it goes. Kelly, please, dear God, who are you whining about today? I am whining about Sarah Winnemucca. Mmm. As it is. Indigenous Peoples Heritage Month. Yep. And Sorry, I, I had to think about how to say it because I know I, I see it written like Native American Heritage Month, Indigenous Peoples Heritage Month. I see it written in different ways, so it took me a and second. And in two weeks, so I think the week the ep- this episode launches, the Friday after Thanksgiving, known as Black Friday in the Americans, the Americans in the, the United States, uh, <laughs> is Native American Heritage Day. Correct. That will also be this week. That is awesome. I love that. And I'm going to say, I'm, I I did look up pronunciations, so I'm hopefully pronouncing things right. There's a lot of people with the same name that they just call that one name, so it may get a little confusing, and there's a lot of American Americanized names as well, so I'm trying my best. You know what? If anyone is still listening after I butchered the Samoan language last week, they get it. They get it. They love us anyways. I hope so. I I just hope they're like, yeah, I couldn't do much better. (laughs) And anyone who can, please do. So Sarah Winnemucca was born sometime around 1844 is like the best guess. Which is better than my last lady who was just allegedly born (laughs) presumably born literally in a lot of the articles it had it in quotes like sometime near 1844 may or may not have born unable to verify they know she was born somewhere in western nevada around 1844 okay she was the daughter of uh winnemucca that was her dad's name. So okay. like, that's why I'm saying like there's a lot of people with the same name. It's the family name. Um, who was a Shoshone who had married the Paiute through marriage. So two different tribes. Okay. Um, to a woman named Tubitoni. So so he's from the Shoshone tribe. Yep. And she's from married, the Paiute tribe. Yep. And, and they've joined. Well, he married or, into the Paiute tribe. Oh, okay. So Sarah okay. is a, a a Paiute, but but she also has she has heritage from both. Yep, correct. Okay. So Sarah has three siblings: um, Mary, an older sister Mary, a younger brother Natchez, and a younger sister Elma. And although later in the story Sarah would call her father the chief of the Northern um, Paiute, the Paiute had no centralized leadership. Um, and her father, though influential, was only the war chief of a small band of around 150 people. He was not like, of, the chief of a tribe. Only 150 people. Only the war chief of 150 people. Yeah. So growing up, um, Sarah was not around white people. She she lived within... She lived within the Indian community. Yeah. And she was first introduced to the white people. That's how I'm wording it. At the age of six, when her grandfather invited her to come to California. So, like, her father and her mother live in, like, the northern part, which is why they're the, the northern um, 
Paiute, and then her father, her grandfather lives in California. Mm-hmm. It went a different tribe. So for the first few years of her life, Sarah Winnemucca um, didn't know she was American because that's not what they called it. That's not what they knew it as. That's not what. Well, she's she growing grew up, in, up in, knowing. entirely in her culture, which in the 1800s, yeah, I I have to imagine is not terribly common to be growing up without consciousness or influence from European settlers. Right. So her um, natural born name is Thokmentani, which means shell flower. Oh. And the the Paiute are known as the Numa. Um, They're also known as the Northern Paiute or the Digger Indians. Okay. I don't know why they were called that. Didn't look into it. Well, I know. Okay, I'm not. I'm not saying that the Paiute did this, but I know that there were tribes, especially in Western North America, southwestern, where they had their homes in the mountains. Like they, so I can see the digging aspect. Like I wonder if that was a part of the the culture or the living situation. Super. Okay, there. There's so much that we do not know. Yeah. So her her people, or at least her the the band she lived with with her with her father and her mother in this war band she was in, um, were very nomadic. They roamed all over western Nevada and eastern Oregon. They would gather gather plants and did a lot of fishing, and so she grew up learning all of that. I wonder if they dug for plants, maybe because that, be really that that nomadic yeah idea. Um, but yeah, even in her early years when she didn't know necessarily what a white man was or what America was um, when when Amaka learned to be afraid of the white man with the blue eyes who looked like owls because of their beards. Oh my god, I fucking I know, I was it. like, mm, yep. Oh shit. Oh, they nailed it. But also how I, I, I think that's such a that's such a testament to intergenerational trauma that the Eld, even even though she has not specifically had an encounter, it's been passed down. Is been passed down because historically, yes, fear them. Yep. It's it's what is that scene in Pocahontas where the where the chief Ohad is like, these white men are dangerous, and then there's a, a Tumblr quote that's like all of American history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, damn it. Sarah's grandfather, uh Trichizo, who is the one that she goes to visit, um, lives in California and he he and like the band he lived with had established positive relations with European Americans who had started exploring California mm-hmm. it's prior to the gold rush prior to like this is still like early days yep. it's like early California her grandfather would even help Captain John C. Fremont during his survey and mapping um, of the Great Basin of California and he would actually even later to go on to fight in the Mexican-American War earning um many friends among the like the um Europeans that were settling there and like basically bran- branching away for his family to also get along with the European Americans. This is another part of United States history that we don't hear a lot about. Like we hear about the, you know, American Mexican War. We don't think about, you know, well Mexico used to go a lot further north and how oh, yeah. did they interact Most with indigenous, you know, North North Americans. And what what were those relations like? And like people choosing sides. Like we, I think we touched a bit on the French American War, mm-hmm. which is really France and America recruiting different tribes of indigenous people. Them, yeah. yeah, and that kind of 
inter intermingling that kind of I I can't think of the words I've been drinking too much but you know we don't hear a lot about that it's always European centric versus Mm -hmm. Mexico we don't hear about the intricacies of how the indigenous peoples made autonomous choices to fight with or against the Mexicans or you know or with or fight yeah it's very interesting so as I mentioned at the age of six Sarah traveled to be near her grandfather in Stockton California where the adults in the area were working at, in the cattle industry. So that's what the Native American, like, or at least that section of her family was doing. And in 1857, Sarah and her sister Elma were arranged to live and work in the household of a man named William Ormsby and his wife. He was, like, a local civic leader in Carson City, Nevada, and the couple had wanted a companion for their daughter, Lizzie. So the, the Winnemucca girls... Um, went, lived with them, were companions for the daughter, but also did domestic work. However, this meant that they had a chance to improve their English and learn more about the European-American ways. Sarah, in particular, began to really, like, feel more at ease going back and forth both between her tribe and, like, the the American way, the culture. So yeah. she was really, like, able to adapt to both. And she was one of the, the few... Um, Paiute in Nevada who knew how to read and write English and then she taught her whole family to speak English and so they would all speak English. Okay, I I have two comments to make. I will start with for their daughter. I will start with the important and relevant one. Um, This is something that we've explored a lot in stories of indigenous peoples is the necessity in bridging the gap between your traditional culture and the European invasion, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and how that bridge has put people in a really good position to do good all around. Yeah. Um, It's unfortunate that became necessary. You know, that's an entirely different different line of commenting, but that is something that we see a lot in the people that we cover who are able to bridge that gap and to be able to move between these two worlds, which especially the European settlers are trying to keep separate. Well, and it's, it's really, it's important to have that bridge. Well, I talk later, like even, even like we hear a lot about like that, the Europeans were like, okay, no, like they need to completely like, um, assimilate, assimilate into our culture. But even the Paiute, like they're, I talk about it later a little bit, but like for a long time, they were not a big fan. Like she gets even more into like being a, a bridge, and a lot of, like a lot of native reservations were like, no, like this isn't okay. Like they're treating us like shit, and you're yeah. over here telling us like we need to accept them. And so like she totally like, fucking there. Yeah, there. There's it's. I, I get into it a little, but like there's just this like you know like seeing it from both sides because we really only ever hear about the European centric version of it. Yeah, and what what's unfortunate about that is that the burden of responsibility seems to be on indigenous people yeah, to stupid learn about the European culture and then to translate that for their their families and their nation. While it's like, well, why are the European European people trying to learn our you culture. halfway yeah. so you can work together. My second comment, I always say never trust a Lizzie. How much does this Lizzie suck where you have to pay for two fucking friends for her? Literally, that's like, yeah, that's the that's all we hear about. Her. Don't don't trust her. Don't trust her. Was her last name Halliday? Maybe she was a Borden. Nah, she was an Ormsby. 
Lizzie Ormsby, I still don't fucking trust her. <laughs> Who needs to be purchased friends? That's fucked. Right. <laughs> you have failed as a parent. In 1859, land was set aside near Pyramid Lake for a reservation. Oh yeah, we're getting in, we're getting into the good times, and by good I mean really really bad times. The unsexy bunny quote. Oh god, yeah. Dude. So Winnemucca and her family were expected to abandon their nomadic life to settle into an quote unquote American lifestyle. Can you okay that uh, okay? Imagine someone came to your house and they're like, "BT Dubs, you're nomadic now. Figure that the fuck out." Oh, and that's exactly what you they would expected. Die. Can you imagine completely changing your lifestyle so drastically? This isn't even changing geog. This isn't even accounting for changing geography. Yeah. Well, and the other part of it is too. It wasn't just like, oh, you and your like tribe, particularly for the nomadic people. They weren't like, oh, you and your 115 year war band, you're going to this reservation. It's like, no, you and this group and this group and this group who were all just going to name the same type of Indian. You're all going to this one reservation. And, you know, sometimes I feel like that is I. I admit I get confused. I have misinformation about the different nations and the subsects of those nations and the tribes within those nations. Mm -hmm. Like it's so diverse. It's so like it's such a tapestry of different people and cultures and like the the smaller you get the more like right intricate it becomes and it was much easier for the united states government to give people one general label which may not even be their name it may have been an americanized version and like right. hey we'll name our cities and our states after you but all y'all who we have deemed to be the exact same group of people get over here yeah. And we don't care if it's a similar climate that you're used to. We don't care if it's a similar lifestyle that you're used to. Just fucking get over there. Get in the corner and stay there. Right. So all of the people that go to this reservation, I'm going to be calling the Paiutes. That doesn't mean they all were. Yeah. But that's what they were all labeled as. And unfortunately, that's what history knows them as. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So they told them, hey, be Americans. Um, start farming. Um, however, uh, as happened with a lot of reservations, they weren't given the best piece of land so they were basically told hey farm this dry arid shitty landscape but we're not going to tell you how to do it there is um there's a new movie out by oh my god i'm totally blanking on the the director's name it's got leonardo dicaprio in it but it's about the osage murders mm -hmm. where basically the united states government gave the osage people crap land yeah and um, who who is who is that little girl that you covered, Sarah? Rah, 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 rah. Anyway, they gave um, they gave the Osage people crapland. It turned out not to be crapland. They were doing really oh, that's well. Right. And then they were like, "We're we're and taking then, this land back." Well, there were a series of murders yeah, and like marriages remember, yep. and scheming as a way to undermine the Osage people, literally murder them and take their land. But it kind of reminds me of uh, the girl you covered. I'm pretty sure her name was Sarah, but she was a formerly enslaved person. Her family was given crap land. Mm -hmm. It turned out hers had a bunch of oil on it. And they tried to take it back. Yeah. Yeah. And there I was remember. a whole, she had to have a conservatorship. Like, it was horrible. Sarah, it begins with an R. Yeah, again, we've covered so many Sarahs. I know. I, I actually... 
it's so crazy because at the beginning of this podcast, I would be able to be like, oh, that oh, was yeah. so-and-so in episode and number. Like, and now I'm like, what? and I can see her picture. I'm pulling up the women we have covered. I want to say it's like Radke or Radic or... You know what? I will figure it out. You keep telling your story because I'm just being tangential. But I like your tangents. I mean, it's relevant because it's like we're using the same crap on multiple, on multiple, you know. Sarah Rector. Rector. That's it. Okay. Here you go. Thank you. Um, So anyways, yeah, they were all forced to be at Pyramid Lake and try to farm without any training. And like Emily said, like, if she was forced to do a nomadic lifestyle, she would die. Many Paiutes died of starvation at Pyramid Lake. Um, Here's the shitty part. So they were only given supplies to last them one year. However, they were supposed to get 23 years worth of supplies. And this happened with a lot of reservations, apparently. But the government um, agents that were, like, working with the reservations pocketed the money intended for the other 22 years of supplies. Jesus fucking crisis and that apparently happened on a lot of different reservations where they're like well we're supposed to get all of these supplies and they're like no this is all you get i I, you know like okay i I know we were talking about nazis the last episode but i'm gonna bring them back up again because they're such a they're such a shitty measuring stick to use you know we talk we talk about the nazis who are literally murdering people in a, a systematic fashion they have blood on their hands. Yep. This is the kind of shit that is a lot more prevalent. And these people also fucking have blood on their hands. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. I don't think that we give enough credit to that kind of abuse of power, the government corruption, the bureaucratic bullshit that literally killed people. Yep. Oh, and I, I didn't forget to mention when she went to live with Lizzie be Lizzie's companion is when she, I think she adopted the name Sarah. Okay. Um, do, do we know her? Yeah, I said it. D- let me let me scroll back up. Sorry, you, you don't have to repeat it. No, it's Th- Thakmentoni. It means shell flower. That was it. Okay, I'm sorry. No, you're fine. Thakmentoni. No. I know, it's very pretty. I wish these names were a little more, like, easy to recall because I we know. heard them. So but, that, we- but that's my job to make it, yeah. like, part of something I know. Um. So with pressure changing from different migrants in the region, um, old Wanamaku, uh, Wanamaka, I'm sorry, like there's going to be an old one, a young one, and then there's Sarah. Like like I said, they all use the same name. Um, arranged to have both of his daughters, so Sarah and Elma, returned to him on the reservation. Um, and shortly after they would arrive home, there would be an open conflict that would occur at Williams Station when two Paiute girls were kidnapped and abused. Oh, the Paiutes God. would then kill five men at the station in retaliation for stealing their children. Um, and the settlers and miners of the organization would organize a militia, making Major Ormsby, who had been like, that's the guy who was um, that had the daughters. But luckily, the daughters had already been returned, yeah. um, led by default. He was killed by the Paiute in a disciplined confrontation in the first event of what would be later known as the Pyramid Lake War. The settlers nearby were alarmed at how well the Paiute fought back and the, how ill-prepared the miners were and how they could not hold their own. White people being defeated by brown people? Right. What? Look- also, I love that th- this is considered a war where it's like, 
so often you hear about victimized victimized groups of people and it's like well, why didn't they fight back oh they fucking did and then it was called a war yeah because as far as like i didn't look super into it because it's not super central to sarah's story yeah um but yeah, like from what I could tell, it was basically like that conflict, maybe a few other skirmishes, and that was it. Well, I think the site of the largest mass execution is in Mankato, Minnesota, and that was of all indigenous people. And it was a similar thing where there was there was a lot of tension building between indigenous yeah. people and European settlers, and it just kind of blew up. And of course, yeah. the indigenous people were the ones to pay no, for that. A lot of like, if you look at like the during this time where like the Indians were being put on reservations, or there was a lot of tensions, a lot of the wars were massacres. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah of yeah. the indigenous people. Oh yeah, it's like the t- it's like. Um, we we used to like to use the word race riot when really it was a massacre. Yeah. So eventually the Paiute and the the settlers, the whites, would reach a truce. Luckily, it was by the end of summer, so it was only like a few months. Um, and at this time, young um, Winnemucca, which was Sarah's cousin, was leading the Paiute as a war chief. So there's old Watamaka, who's her her dad. Okay. <laughs> and then there's. Young Winnemucca, who's your cousin. So it's like Winnemucca Sr., Winnemucca Jr. Except they're not father and son. Oh, okay. It's her dad and her cousin. <laughs> it's weird. It's Even fine. though he has a son. I got, it's fine. Yeah. I'm keeping up. I'm, I'm keeping track of the important people yeah. in this narrative. So shortly after this, Nevada was established as a U.S. territory. Yay. Mm. And James Nye was appointed as its governor. When he came to the territory and went to the Pyramid Lake Reservation, he met with Old Winnemucca, Young Winnemucca, and the rest of the Paiute, who put on a grand display, which was very, very common. Like, when people would come and visit the reservations, like, they would put on a big cultural display of, like, look at our culture. Like, look how cool we are. Yeah. So that's what they did. Please stop trying to fucking exactly. genocide us. <laughs> yeah. Um. So for the next five years... um. Things were pretty okay, and actually Sarah and her family, her parents in particular, would travel away from the reservation, performing on stage. Um, Some of the places they performed were Virginia City, Nevada, um, and San Francisco, where they were billed as the Paiute Royal Family. Again, there was no centralized um, government in the Paiute. Well, that's why, you know, it's that same kind of thing that, that's why everyone who's like, oh, I'm 136th. Native American because my grandfather married an Indian princess. It's like they didn't have fucking princesses. Like sometimes certain tribes had not even royalty. It would be like there it was, was a, a leadership. Chief. Yeah. There was a leadership. But particularly a lot of tribes before they were put on reservations, not a lot, I guess, but a chunk were nomadic. Yeah. And so they they didn't have a centralized leadership. They had a leader of a small band of people. Yeah. Anyways, at this time during like the travels, her father would take a younger wife. Her mother was still alive. <laughs> oh, but he would take a younger wife, uh, um, with whom he would have a son. So he she gets another brother. Um, during this time, the U.S. another brother from another mother. Yeah, there you go. What? Oh my God, Drake and Josh. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, as this continued during those five years, the U.S. forces would repeatedly act against Native Americans to remind them who was in charge. 
gross to say, but it's true. No, no. And I, I think it's something that we need to acknowledge because that is the behavior that we still see today. And yep. I think we need to acknowledge it as the dick throwing pissing contest. It really oh, is because it, it's, it's pathetic. It's, yep. it's harmful and it is so fucking pathetic. Yep. So the Native Americans were repeatedly accused of different raids and cattle stealing, particularly like in Nevada and California area. Um, I mean, it happened all across the state, but like the ones I'm talking about there. Um, at one point during 1865, Captain Almond B. Wells led a Nevada volunteer cavalry in indiscriminate raids across the northern part of the state, attacking Paiute bands that were like, you know, leaving the reservation to go and like forage and stuff and then come back. Um during this time, Wells and his man, uh, men attacked Old Winnemucca's camp, killing 29 of the thir- of 30 people that were present in the band, all of whom were old men, women, and children. So Old Winnemucca... You feel like men? You feel like fucking men? Old Winnemucca wasn't there. He was out traveling with um, Sarah. His family, yeah. However, both of his wives and his young son, his new son... Um, were with the band and oh, were and were killed. Damn it! The one person who survived was um Sarah's sister Mary, um, but she would die uh later that winter just due to the severe conditions that the Paiute were facing. Yeah. Luckily, her her brother and her younger sister Elma were out of the area at the time. Um, Elmo had been adopted by a French family in California, where he, not even joking, she married a man named John Smith. God fucking damn it. Are you serious? Who was a white man, obviously, and they (laughs) they moved to Montana and then later Idaho. So that's like her sister's out of the, like her younger sister's out of the picture. She's off living her life. Yep. Where she's moved on. But yeah, so her mom, her stepmom, her baby brother, and um, 26 other people that she knew had were been all murdered. murdered in a, in a raid. And the only reason she was spared is because she wasn't she there. She wasn't there. Same Can we talk dad. about survivor's guilt? Yeah. Yeah. Within a few years, about 490 Paiute survivors that had survived living on this reservation were moved to a military camp, which became known as Fort McDermott, on the Nevada-Oregon border. There, they sought protection from the U.S. Army against the Nevada volunteers that had been raiding their camps. And in 1872, the federal government established what they would call the the Malheur Reserve in eastern Oregon, designated by the president at the time, who was Ulysses S. Grant, for the northern Paiute and the Bannock peoples in the area. So, again, they're putting two tribes together. Yep. So three bands of Paiute moved there, um, along with some of the Bannock people. And later in the year, Sarah, her brother Natchez, and his family, as well as their father... Um, Old Winnemucca would also move there. So they're living on the Malheur Reservation now. So they, they're in Oregon instead of Nevada. At 27, so that's how old Sarah is now. She's so young. Yep. She would begin working at the Bureau of Indian Affairs at Fort McDermott as an interpreter. She's like, hey, I'm going to help try and help us understand them and them understand us. And this is a career path that we've seen a lot of other indigenous women take. Yep. So she was invited to work as an interpreter um, by Samuel B. Parrish, who I know we've heard that name before. See, I was feeling that way about um, the the Nevada guy. Um, I, I actually Googled him. The guy that, like, James, the James Nye? Yeah. 
Yeah, they're, they're, I was like, that fucking name. I, and I don't think it's Bill Nye, mm-hmm. the science guy. There's something about James Nye where yeah. I'm like, I don't like him. Yeah, so Samuel Parrish was an Indian agent, um, and she found that, that Parrish would work well with the Paiute. He encouraged them to learn new ways, helped them plant crops that would support the people. He helped them establish a well-managed agricultural program. He had a school built. He helped Sarah become a teacher. Like, so Samuel Parrish is actually, like, helping the... He's, yes, he's, he's still an assimilating them. Yes. But he is assimilating them in a way that is not killing them. He he is... Working within the system that he has. I, I was going to say, none of what he's doing would be necessary right. had it not been for the awful, abhorrent treatment yep. that had led up to this. Yep. And now he's trying to he, he's trying to mitigate harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's doing what he can Which, within a system that I'll, he's granted. I'll give that to him. It's kind of what Sarah's doing too. Yeah. So Sarah would go on to marry Edward Bartlett, who was a former first lieutenant in the army in January 29, eighteen seventy two, in Utah. He would abandon her shortly thereafter. And God she, damn it! And she would return to Camp McDermott. Um, McDammit! it! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Chicken McDammit it sandwich. Fuck that guy. She would then move back to the Malheur Reservation and file for divorce. She also filed to get her name um, Winnemucca back. Yeah. Uh, and they they granted it to her. They were like, yeah, of course. In the divorce decree, uh, Sarah would talk about what she did to support herself when her husband left her with no money, writing, I did sewing, I made gloves for a living. And like, so she's like, I just did what I could to survive. And so, yeah, they gave her her name back, which is good. Literally the least they could right. do. After four years, Parrish, unfortunately, was replaced um, in 1876 by a man named William Reinhardt. Did he rhyme them hard? Kind of. And not in a what a way. dick. Um, and yeah, the Paiute, who were like very close to Parrish, who Parrish had helped a lot, were very sad to see him go. So Reinhardt was a proponent of extermination-style warfare. Oh, sh- no. So his big emphasis in running this camp was to keep the Native Americans under his thumb. He res- he reversed many of the policies that Parrish had initiated, telling the Paiute people the reservation land belonged to the government and not to them. He wouldn't pay workers for their labor in communal fields and would alienate a lot of the tribal leaders. Conditions on the reservation quickly became intolerable. Sarah was, of course, as a translator, assigned to work with Reinhardt. And if she would translate Reinhardt's words without comment, she was failing to protect her people. But if she tried to convey the grievances from her people what when she was translating, she she may be fired from her position and she found herself in a very tough place. She kind of took a, like a middle road and like would sometimes do a little bit of both. And she was eventually fired from her position. And I, I cannot fault her for that. Right. Because... You're you're walking the line of supporting your people who are being victimized, but also staying in a position in which you can support them. Right. Like I'm just imagining he's like, oh, because you're lesser beings, therefore the government, meh, 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 meh. and she's like translating, like, so this guy's a fucking asshole. Yep. He sucks. He sucks so hard. Yep. <laughs> and like he has no idea what she's saying. So in a book she would later write that I'll talk about, um, Winnemucca would recount that Reinhardt would sell the supplies intended for the Paiute and the Bannock people to the local whites. Much of the good land on the reservation was illegally expropriated by the white settlers. 
And within a few years, virtually all of the Paiute and the Bannock people left the reservation because of the abuses and the difficulties of living there. Which I'm like, good for you. But tell me that systemic racism hasn't affected or benefited you at all. Right. The Bannock, um, so the other tribe that was living on the reservation with them, um, left Fort Hall, like, or had left Fort Hall reservations due to a similar problem. So they joined with the Bannock that were in in the the Mahler Fort, and they moved west, raiding isolated white settlements in southern Oregon and southern Nevada, triggering what would be known as the Bannock War. Shocking. The degree to which the northern Paiute people participated in the Bannock War is still unclear. It sounds like they were mostly just bystanders. Uh, When Amukka said that she and several other Paiute families were basically held hostage by them to make it look like, hey, like we're banded together. But no one's really quite sure. Well, because the European settlers are not distinguishing. Exactly. Between nations and tribes and bands and any of that. Yeah. So during the Bannock War, when she could, Winnemucca worked as a translator for General Oliver O. Howard of the U.S. Army, whom she had met during one of his visits to the reservation prior to her leaving. She also acted as a scout and messenger. According to her account, the Bannock warriors and the army soldiers liked each other so much that they they rarely shot to kill. For whatever reason, casualties were actually relatively few in these conflicts, which is incredibly shocking because normally that was not the case. So... Okay, I I watched this video ages ago where it was talking about training soldiers to shoot other people Mm -hmm. because it is not something that inherently we as people want to do. There are two kinds of people who are really good at killing other people. People who want to kill and people who are killing for a strong moral purpose. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the reasons... um, with targets they'll have a person silhouette because they literally had to train soldiers like from after world war one on to shoot at a human figure to kill like there are stories of you know american soldiers being out in the forest during world war one seeing a couple german soldiers walk by and then and then their co is like why didn't you shoot those like well they weren't fucking bothering anyone yeah they're like why would we so there was actually training that had to be done to ensure human beings could kill other human beings. I'm not saying it's something that we've never been able to do. We've proved ourselves very capable of that. But I think I think that's so interesting how even the military has had to train people how to shoot other people and how to be okay with that. Like it's I don't know, it's one of those like weird things that almost gives me hope in humanity like for the most part, people do not want to hurt each other. Right. It is a thing. Like, we, as human beings, don't want to hurt other other human beings. Yeah. But, yeah, so she's, she's like, basically saying, like, because if you remember, I said, like, that the, the fort that they were at was run by the military. So, like, yeah, they, they probably legitimately know each other, some of them. And so they weren't shooting to kill. There was very few casualties and during this time, like I said, Winnemucca was helping the army and she was highly regarded by the army officers she worked with. And in her in the book she writes later, there's several like letters of recommendations from them, like praising her for her work. And she said in the book, quote, this was the hardest work I ever did for the government in all my life. Having been in the saddle night and day, distance about 223 miles, yes, I went for the government when the officers could not get an Indian man or a white man to go for love or money. 
I, only an Indian woman, went and saved my father and his people. Her courageous actions landed her on the front page of the New York Times in 1878. However, this caused a lot of mistrust between her and the local tribes. Like, this is when some of the the problems started of, like, all right, you're kind of going against us. Like, you're helping the white men to fight this war against this Indian tribe. Like, how can we trust you? There's so much hurt and distrust that you can't go too far on either side. Yeah. It's it's an impossible line for her to walk. Right. When, in reality, all she wants is what's best for everyone. Exactly. I mean, uh, probably the best for her people, but she is, like you said, working within a system. Yeah. That... She she can't overturn the whole thing. Mm-mm. She can't overturn the United States government. Yeah. She's doing her best as an individual who has an understanding of both cultures, who has the language of both cultures, and she's just trying to make it suck a little less within the parameters allowed for her. Exactly. And that's not like the fun, yeah, and she fucked everyone in the right, ass exactly. story that we like to hear, but oftentimes that's the reality. Yeah. So the Bannock War ended badly for the Paiutes, even though they were mostly innocent bystanders and not the ones actually doing the raiding. Um, And afterward, the military leaders forced the Paiutes at Camp McDermott to march more than 350 miles in the winter to the Yakama Reservation in the Washington Territory. A total of 543 Paiutes were interned in what could only be described as a concentration camp. Let that sink in for a I'm really glad you used that word. Because it is like I'm, I'm, I don't go a ton yeah. into the details because uh, Winnemucca wasn't there a whole lot because she was out and like talking about her people and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But um, that is like how she describes it and how even a lot of other historians at this point um, describe it is that it was concentration camp conditions. In the United States, we really like to put on the rose-colored glasses when it comes to our own history. We really like to sanitize things. And it always seems like the people who are railing for historic preservation are the ones who want to ignore the really ugly and harmful parts that still affect us today. Yeah. But I think that is a, a completely appropriate explanation. I, I th- It's a totally appropriate descriptor. Yeah. Because w- marching... Innocent people, miles and miles to a new place to put them in a camp. God, does that sound familiar to anyone? Yeah. And this was before that. Like, I I just, I, I don't know. It's, it just, it totally, it blows my mind. It really blows my mind. And I am, I acknowledge this, I am part of the problem because I do not know this history very well. I'm trying to learn more about it. But this is not shit that I was taught in school. And it's my responsibility to educate myself. I'm, I can't expect anyone else to do it for me. And so that's why I'm so glad that you're telling this story and that we're discussing stories like this. Yeah, no, I agree. Winnemucca was absolutely devastated that at where her tribe ended up because she had promised the Paiutes that they would be all right if they just followed the military's orders And, like, stayed out of the war and stuff like that. And, obviously, that isn't what happened. And so she would go to 
the camp or the reservation to work as an interpreter. She would argue with the reservation agents. She would write letters to the military and government leaders. And in the winter of 1880, she would even accompany her father and other Paiute leaders to Washington to meet with the Secretary of the Interior, Charles Schurz, which is a name. Schurz. Where they would succeed in obtaining a letter saying that, hey, the, the Paiutes are allowed to leave Yakima and return to their old reservation. Wow, that's cute. Yeah, <laughs> like unfortunately, the agents at Yakima would not let them leave, and if and because no one ever showed up at the other reservation, they ended up closing it down. Fucking assholes. Yep. So during this time, several of the Paiutes started accusing uh, Winnemucca of betraying them for money, even oh, though she would no. show them the letter and say, "quote." I have said everything I could on your behalf. I have suffered everything but death to come here with this paper. I don't know whether it speaks truth or not. You can say what you like about me. You have a right to say I have sold you. It looks like I have, or it looks so. I have told you many things which are not my own words and the words of the agents and the soldiers. I have never told you my own, my own words. They were the words of the white people, not mine. And she's like, I have done literally everything I fucking can. And I, I totally, I, I understand where where the Paiutes are coming from because they have been betrayed in every single way. And I'm sure by people that they were sure they could trust. Yeah. So it's not a large leap to think that she has also betrayed them for money, for power, for influence, because that is what everyone else around them has been doing, has let people starve to sell supplies has let people die like it's at this point they're not even fucking surprised yeah but they also need an outlet for that rage and it is so tragic like like, the situation is just tragic no judgment on anyone except for the european settlers who were like pulling all in the u.s government right but like between the paiu and sarah it's just fucking tragic because she is trying so hard and everyone else is just like blowing up her shit and then she's not able to fulfill these promises and these obligations she's trying to make to her own people who then are understandably frustrated yeah oh god so Sarah would keep trying to do what what she could for her people and eventually she would be hired by General Oliver Howard um, to teach the Shoshone prisoners at Van- at the Vancouver barracks, um, just teach them in general, which remember her, her father was a Shoshone. Shoshone, yeah. So she goes and does that. There she met um, and became close to a man named Lieutenant Lewis Hopkins, who was an employee of the Indian Department, and they would marry a year later in San Francisco. After getting married, they would travel east, where Sarah would deliver almost 300 lectures throughout major cities in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic, seeking to heighten awareness of the injustices going on against the Native Americans. She would escalate her fight for reform and um, would do a lot of face-to-face petitions and letters, and when they would fail to improve the conditions of the Paiutes, she began lecturing in San Francisco, dramatizing the plight of of the reservation Indians. These performances offered a carefully curated version of an Indian princess, quote-unquote, to various white crowds where she often wore Native dresses, 
She told a reporter, quote, I would be the first Indian woman who ever spoke before white people, and they don't know what the Indians have got to stand sometimes. It's a weird sentence. What, like what they what have they to stand put up for. With, yeah. Or what they have to stand for. Yeah, you're right. She would describe the abuses of the reservation agents, particularly Reinhardt, but her voice came at a high cost. Reinhardt would respond to her publicly, calling her um, a drunk, a gambler, and a whore. Not only would he respond publicly, but he would also write letters to the Office of Indian Affairs. What a prick. Yeah. I, she's speaking the truth, and he's just like, yeah, yeah, but you're a drunk and a gambler, and you sleep around. I just envision this he's, old he's, white man pouting in a corner. I'm not going to say exactly what I'm imagining because I don't think it's necessarily a fair comparison, but I'm imagining her being up there speaking the truth and he's having a fucking public tantrum. Yeah, he's having a hissy fit. And whoever you're imagining right now, it's just probably right. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's like, oh, this is so hard for me. She's a liar. Yeah. He's just a whiny fucking bitch. In Boston... Winnemucca would meet the sisters Elizabeth Peabody and Mary Peabody Mann. The later was married to an educator named Horace Mann. They began to promote her speaking career. In addition, the two women would help her compile and prepare her lecture material materials for a publication as a book called Life Among the Paiutes, which is the book I've been referencing throughout this. Um, her book was published in 1883, and it was the first known autobiography written by a Native American woman and the first U.S. copyright registration secured by a Native American woman. I, I'm going to say my comments for the end because I have a lot of okay. comments about Sarah. Despite her speaking successes, Sarah was not always comfortable as her audiences would like and her writing about Americans often criticized their hypocrisy and challenged popular narratives about the pioneers. Of the infamous Donner Party who showed up when she was five when Amuka wrote, well, while we were hiding in the mountains, the people that my grandfather called our white brothers came along to where our winter supplies were. They set everything we had left on fire, and it was a fearful sight. It was all we had for the winter, and it was bur- it all burned during the night. There is an angle of the Donner Party narrative that we do not hear. Yeah. Actually, there there's another, there's another angle where they actually, um, I think it's the Forlorn Hope is the the group of 15 or so people who leave the Sierra Nevada mountains to try and find help. They encounter a couple of indigenous people who help them out, and then they decide, we're going to fucking kill them. And the indigenous yeah. people hear it, and they're like, we outie. But because they've expended all of their energy and resources helping the Donner Party, the Donner Party catches up with them, and then <laughs> Yeah, and then they eat each other in the mountains. Fuck yeah. the Donner Party. So yeah. many. Oh. So even more cutting, she would reflect in her autobiography, and I feel like this sentence or this paragraph says a lot. Quote, since the war in 1860, there have been 103 of my people murdered and our reservation taken from us, and yet we are called the blood-seeking savages, are keeping the promises to our government. Oh, my dear good Christian people, how long are you going to stand and see us suffer at your hands? That feels... I just like that she's like, you're calling us, like, savages, and you're the one murdering us. Oh, my dear Christian people, how long will you see us suffer at your hands is so relevant to so many causes. 
And as, as someone who grew up Catholic and went to Catholic school and then got out and was like, whoa, I grew up with super chill hippie Jesus who loved everyone, especially like the poor and the downtrodden. What kind of Jesus are you worshiping? Right. Like that is, I I mean, that's one of the reasons I I moved so far away from organized religion because it didn't feel like what I have been taught to believe was what was being practiced. And I just, I just wanted to try and like, I just want to try to be good, do good, you know? And the fact that she is calling out their their Christianity, which has so often been used to victimize and subjugate other people. I mean, like you say, we're bloodthirsty. Are you fucking kidding me? And I, I think it's so interesting about Sarah's story is that she is unpopular on both sides because she's trying to work within the dominant system, but she's also calling out the dominant system on their hypocrisy and their bullshit. So she's never going to be fully accepted. And that is like this ultimate sacrifice that she's making for the greater good as a single person in an unfair and unbalanced system. Yeah. She's just like, I'm still going to fight for what I believe in, regardless of if both people hate me. Speaking of Christianity, can we talk about martyrs right now? (laughs) Yeah. So her second husband, the new guy she married... Uh, was a lot better. Great. He stuck around. He actually contributed to his wife's efforts in gathering material for the book she wrote at the Library of Congress because I don't think she was allowed to go in because she was a Native American. God fucking So he would get stuff for her. However, he would contract tuberculosis uh, and die. And then after that, she would learn that he was addicted to gambling and lost a lot of her money. Oh, God damn it. So, like, he was somewhat better, but then, like, also not, okay, not fantastic. A- addiction is a disease, and I acknowledge that, but Sarah cannot fucking catch a right. break, can she? So once he died, he would return. she would return to Nevada and would spend a year, or Nevada, and then on to California, where she would spend a year lecturing in San Francisco. She would then return to Pyramid Lake, so, like, where the that first reservation she started at. Yeah, and where that quote-unquote war, yeah. a.k.a. One, one of them. <laughs> yeah, occurred. Uh, yeah, that was the one where they took the two little girls and then and then they got And then mad. the Paiutes understandably retaliated. Yeah, and then, and then, and then, the then when the whites... of the U.S. government no, fucking... No, this was when the miners retaliated. Oh, that's And then right. they were like, why are the Indians so good at, like, defending and why do the miners suck at fighting? And it was just like, really? Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> but, yeah. but what about white superiority? Yeah. So they went back there and her and her brother built uh, a school for Indian children um, at Lovelock, Nevada, in order to p- promote the Paiute culture and language. They named it the Peabody Indian School because Mary Peabody um, found, like helped them fund it. Um, and it would operate for a couple of years. However, changes in the federal policy following what was considered the success of the Carlisle Indian School. God fucking damn it! Prompted the federal government to promote education for Native American children at English language boarding schools. No, 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 no. Rewind. Mm-hmm. Roll it back. Mm-mm. I can't. God fucking damn it. So and the- it, if you don't know why I'm so upset, <laughs> just wait until my segment. I'm going to get I into knew. it. I'm going to get into so it. So Winnemucca School was closed in 1887 and the children were transferred to a facility in Grand Junction, Colorado. Fuck. Um, 
after, shortly after this, the Dawes Serverality Act of 1887 required allotment of communal lands on reservations to individual households to force assimilation of the tribes, um, which Sarah wasn't happy with, but she was like, at this point, she was older and she would spend the last four years of her life repu- retired from public activity. She would de- die of tuberculosis at her sister Elma's, Elma's house in Idaho. So legacy. There is a there is a monument to Sarah um, at the National Statuary Hall in Washington D.C. There fucking better be. Um, and a more a modern anthropologist described her book about the Paiute as quote one of the first and one of the most enduring ethno historical books written by an American Indian, and it's been frequently cited by scholars as like a good book on, like, what happened to some of these tribes. Yeah. Um, In 1993, Sarah was inducted into the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame. And then she was also inducted, in 1994, inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Is that the one in Seneca Falls? Yeah. That we need to visit! Oh, my God! So, uh, Winnemucca may have begun her life ignorant of Americans, but by the time she died in 1891... Americans were not ignorant of her, nor were her people ignorant of Americans. Her obituary ran in the New York Times when she died. Wow. Um, and though her speeches and writing did not make the changes she hoped that they would, um, they remained vivid and eloquent and are still a testimony to how like those tribes functioned. And there were changes that enacted after she passed and during when she passed unfortunately things kind of got a lot worse before they got better but I think with like her help and her like raising awareness of how bad her people were being treated it really just opened the door for the better treatment that they eventually got you know we we cover a lot of women we cover a lot of events that seem to be these watershed moments where it's like and then everyone realized this was fucked up. But there was so much more that needed to happen before the watershed moment. Yeah. You know what I mean? And Sarah's tragedy is that she was a drop, a powerful one, but a drop in what would become a torrent of understanding the hurt and the damage and the genocide committed against indigenous peoples in the United States. Yeah. And the fact that we're still talking about her, the fact that I haven't heard of her, I don't know if you had heard of her before you covered her story, Mm. um, is a testament to how important her work is, was, and will continue to be. Yeah. Oh my fucking god. Poor I just she did so much good. She you did. Know, sometimes we you know, like like you covered your dentist last yeah. week who was like and then you know, she finally received all these accolades and this recognition. Sarah never fucking got that. No. She just moved to where she thought she could do the most good. And I hope in whatever afterlife there may or may not, whatever the situation is, that she understands that she did make an impact and that she did do good. Yeah. Her statue does look pretty sweet, too. God 
damn it. Ugh. And so, so much of what you talked about is going to become relevant in my story, especially her being able to tell her own story and the story of her people. That yeah. that really that really struck me. Yeah, it was unfortunate. Like what happened and what, like how she was blamed, even though it wasn't her fault, on both sides. Yeah, it was just sad, but like. Also, I'm glad she, like, devoted her life to doing something she truly cared about. Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank goodness. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash herstory. Emily, I know what you're whining about, but do you want to tell our audience what you're whining about? Um, we'll see if they're fucking ready for it. God knows I'm not. Um, so actually Kelly and I are very much on topic today because it is uh, Native, Native American or Indigenous Heritage Month. And by the time this episode comes out, it will be Indigenous People's Heritage Day. Um, I originally was going to cover an Indigenous woman and then kind of found myself at a crossroads and at the very last minute decided to deviate. So today I'm going to be whining about Indian school survivor testimonials. Which, I mean, we've talked about the Indian schools before. Yep. When I, I covered Zikala Shah, I think it was like the December of our first year of doing this podcast. I should have written down the episode number, but if you search for Zikala Shah, she, she was a survivor of the, the Indian boarding schools. And, and I, really quick disclaimer, if I use the word Indian, it's because that is what they were called. That is what they were referred to. And also, I feel like it's a testament to how fucked up they were. This is what they were called. But okay. Um, but I'm going to go a little more into it. I, it. It's one of those things. It is such a it's such a huge part of North American history and United States history that I never I never learned about this until I mean, doing this podcast. It's just like the like essential like like my story briefly touched on like yeah. the concentration camps, some of the reservations. Yes. I mean, I, there, there, there's so much that we were not taught in the public school system and that was on purpose. Oh yeah. And, well, um, and it's all European centric or white centric, you know, we didn't do anything wrong. They attacked us. They, exactly. and it's like, we fucking took their land. Yeah. We committed genocide. Try so. 
I mean, it's still genocide. Yeah, the Holocaust was still genocide. That's true. <laughs> even though there were survivors. Okay, so. One of the countless tragedies of the genocide and forced relocation of indigenous people in North America is the erasure of tribal histories and individual histories. Oftentimes, accounts of indigenous people come from Europeans who are and are told through their own cultural lens. People have been robbed of their own stories and are only records that they ever existed may be questionable, exaggerated accounts at which they are not the center of. This is what I began reflecting on as I prepared to cover a woman known as Chief Pineleaf or Woman Chief. Actually, it's disputed as to whether or not they're the same fucking person, even though they're kind of conflated to be the same person. Therefore, my dilemma. I will be telling her story next week. Good. Because it's, you know, I I, I didn't want to just... want to tell it. I I didn't want to exclude it. You know, period. Um, but I just kind of had this, I had this issue. But as I was reading about her, I found that the primary resource about her life was written by a fur trapper and explorer named James Pearson Beckworth in his own memoir called The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth, Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians. Oh, Jesus Christ. I don't know if he was. <laughs> I just... I did not read his memoir, um, especially because we've already talked about like the lukewarm legitimacy of some of these yeah. hierarchical structures. And anyway, yeah, because of this, I want to highlight the voices of indigenous people telling their own stories. So in recent years, the horrors of Indian boarding schools have received more attention, giving survivors the opportunity to tell their own stories So today, we'll be sharing a few of these accounts. Emily just likes to be a bummer. Um, No, I'm kidding. I'm really glad you're sharing these because it's something that needs to be shared. It's so important. And I was like, there are so many of these people that are, they're not alive anymore to tell their own stories. They existed at a time where we only even know about them because of, European centric mm-hmm. retellings who are and those resources are questionable at best. And I was like, how can I share information from the mouths of indigenous people themselves? And I mean I thought the Indian boarding schools and I that's where I went. But before we get to that, some context of these boarding schools. In case you didn't listen to my episode about Zikala Shah three, four, five, however many years ago. I don't know how long we've actually been doing this podcast. Like 200 episodes ago. It's over 200. Dude, I cannot believe we we passed. Just, we at, just. We passed we, episode 200 not, sober having no idea it happened. We <laughs> nodded at it. And then we just were like, we're just going to ignore we it. We were like, wait a minute. What? Yeah, my, I, my I, husband was like, I can't believe you didn't do anything. And I'm like, shut up. I um I had a coworker who um she she was concerned she was like asking another coworker if they were sensitive to swearing and they were like yes and they were and my coworker was like wait but seriously <laughs> like I need to know what the boundaries of this office are and uh, they commented I know I've listened to Emily's podcast so I know she's fine with swearing I was like oh my god when I tell people about the podcast I never actually expect them to listen. 
and they were saying like every time I listen to it it makes me want to hang out with drunk Emily I'm like well drunk Emily is way more on top of it than sober Emily because episode 200 Emily was stone cold sober and a fucking mess (laughs) oh my god anyway Anywho's. So practice from the early 1800s until the 1970s. It was actually like 1969, but like Close I'm not going to quibble over months. Federal Indian boarding schools, as they were called, were created by the federal government to assimilate indigenous children into European culture. There's Cap- so much wrong with that sentence. Yes. Yeah, sorry, I had to like choke down some bile. Yeah, <laughs> before I read this name, Captain Henry Pratt, who was a disturb, disturb, dis- I almost said disturbance, disturbing, <laughs> disturbing disturbance to the to the title captain. I'm not trying anymore. Um, he served as the first superintendent, uh. Of the school of the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania. I literally just mentioned that. That's why I freaked the fuck out. I was like, I bet Carlisle's going to be talking about. There's so much. There's so much in your story that just is so relevant to mine. And I... It it lined up... Carlisle was one of the big ones. Yes. Well, and and Pratt's aptly named. um, He's infamously quoted for the whole philosophy and methodology Behind of these schools. He infamously stated that the mission of these schools was to quote, and this is not, these are not my words, kill the Indian and save the man, oh. unquote. And if you are looking about, if you're reading anything about these boarding schools, you're going to see that quote. You're going to see that name. He's so much worse. He's so much more than that. Um, Hashtag history does a really good episode about these boarding schools and they cover him. Definitely check it out. I'm just doing a brief overview of the whole concept and I'm getting into survivor accounts. Oh my God. Can we go to his grave and pee on it? Yes, please. How insulting would it be? For a woman to pee out. Like a guy peeing on something. It's so casual. You can do it in like three seconds. People with with vaginas have like to fucking process. work. It is a process. Can we buy some shiwis? <laughs> yes. I and know just there. do a grave pissing tour across America. Yes. <laughs> we'll visit historical landmarks and piss on um, men's graves that deserve it. Yes. Maybe some women's graves that deserve it too. We'll see. I'm just going to say never trust a Lizzie. Anyway, children. I wouldn't res- trust peeing on a Lizzie's grave. Okay, that is how you get cursed. Yeah. I see your point. I retract my statement. Anyway, children were systemically removed from their homes and families sent to these schools and had their heritage erased or beaten out of them if necessary. And I cannot overstate the the cultural erasure and the violence committed against these children to achieve that. Children would have their names changed to English ones, their long hair, which could be a significant cult, which could have significant yeah, like cultural significance, um, would be cut. 
which could be incredibly traumatic. When I covered Z Call a shot, she like hid under a bed. Oh yeah, a lot and of was times dragged they would, they, yeah, out and they forcibly shorn like people down. Yeah, and shave their heads. Can you imagine doing that to a fucking child? No. God. Um, and they would be dressed in Western style clothes. Children were not allowed to speak their indigenous languages and were trained in domestic or labor work so that they would blend in with European culture, but always remain in subservient roles. So they're not like, hey, we get European culture has overtaken the swath of land. You want to be a doctor? We'll help you get there. No, they're like, you want to be a maid? Yeah. You want to say, and here's the thing, again, Nothing wrong with those roles, but they are specifically training indigenous children to be, to be subservient, subservient to the Europeans, to the Europeans while still, while, while abandoning, Not even sorry, abandoning. abandoning while stripping them of their culture yeah, it's so gross. that they blend. Physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, neglect, and more were rampant. Children who died while in these schools were often buried in unmarked graves, and their parents would be given sparse details regarding their child's death if they were notified at all. So I went to the the Denver Historical uh, Society Museum, a whole exhibit about, you know, the indigenous culture and the indigenous people who live there. And there was a section about these boarding schools. And because I covered Z Kalasha, I was like, oh. And there was a story of, uh, some some mothers whose children had been forced to go to a school in New Mexico, which is just a little bit south of Colorado. It's not that far. And I th- the majority of the children did not return yeah, well, because they died. That's the other thing to m- mention, too, is like sometimes these schools were halfway across the country. Yes. It did not matter. They were just like, we're taking your kids and we're putting them like five states over. For your child to be in an adjacent state was was close. Really impressive. But I I think it was, and and I'm I'm just recalling from memory and kind of making it, but it was like out of 10 or 11 students, three returned. Yeah. Because the rest died. Can you imagine that kind of fucking mortality rate in any other situation in the United States? No. Disgusting. I mean, I can't actually because I think of like asylums and stuff. Oh, but. well, okay. I mean, modern day. Well, and, I and all, like, and then we, there, there's a, there are a lot that of rabbit holes. Society deems unworthy. That's when you see death rates like this. Yes, 100%. The, the United States operated or supported 408 boarding schools across 37 states. Damn, I didn't realize there was that many. Yeah, and I there was That's a high terrifying. concentration in Hawaii and Alaska because at this time, I think those are the states that had the highest concentrations of indigenous people left because the continental United States... Had already, since, like, you know, massacred a lot of them. Since day one, there, there have been a lot of... There have been a lot of uh, genocide going on. Yeah. I actually, um, when I was in Philadelphia, there was an exhibit... or. When I was in Boston, there was an exhibit about the um, enslaved people, yeah. you know, who who lived there. And there was a whole thing about how actually it was indigenous people who were primarily enslaved before. And then yep. when the United States kind of realized, like, oh, you just get people from the Caribbean and Africa over here. Then it started to become the majority Africans and, you know, black yep. people who became 
enslaved. Yeah, because they were like, well, if we're not taking their land, maybe they won't fight back as much. Well, and they were also trading like they were trading goods. They were doing there. There was a lot of there was a lot of like it was quote unquote capitalistic bullshit. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, So countless children died and countless more have suffered and continue to suffer. We are still discovering graves across North America. And that counts Canada. They they were real big into this too. Um, I'm primarily focusing on the United States because we live in the United States. And honestly, the United States really needs to fucking have this shit hammered home. Yeah. So the first woman I'm going to talk about is Ramona Charette Klein. And the resource I used for her information was Spectrum News, New York One. Ramona is a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of the Chippewa Tribe and was seven years old when she was taken to the Fort Totten Indian Boarding School in North Dakota in 1954. Because these went on until 1969. So a lot of the survivor stories we have, they were happening in the fucking 50s. Yeah. The idyllic 50s. Her family was struggling with poverty, with 10 people in her family sharing two rooms. The Fort Totten School, 150 miles away from her home, was touted as offering children greater opportunities. Quote, if your children are hungry, I don't know if you can even call that having a choice, Ramona said. It's also worth knowing that parents could be sent to prison for not complying with the government. So it's... There, there, there's some argument, and even with survivors, there's resentment. Like, why did my parents send me here? Why did my parents let Sometimes this happen? It, wasn't a choice. it, it never really was a choice. Um, like we talked about with Zikala Shah, it was a necessity of survival. It was never a choice. Well, there were times that the government would literally just show up and take your children. Yeah, it was. It, it could be a, a forcible taking. It could be. You know, hey, we're going to throw you in fucking prison if you don't let us take your kids. Right, it like could you be think a, your kids can't eat now? Wait until you're in jail. It could be a sur- necess- necessity of survival. Yeah. Regardless, the circumstances did not actually allow for choice. Yeah, exactly. Terrible. Ramona and the other children were terrified. As she recalled, quote, I was among strangers. I was scared. I remember hearing other kids cry at night. When she arrived, staff forced Ramona to undress and cut her hair. Quote, I believe they made the assumption that I had head lice and fine combed my head with the kerosene. Yeah, that was a thing. I could see that in the 1800s. This is the 1950s and it's like gasoline. We're going to comb your hair with gasoline because we assume you're dirty. Yeah, that's gross. God's sakes. Though the Fort Totten School was supposed to afford children better conditions than they ha- may have at home, Ramona often went hungry and was beaten by staff. When beaten, Ramona would refuse to cry, saying, quote, that determined child was how I got to where I am today because I won't let them take my dignity. I just won't. Nice. We talk about spite. Yeah. And, yeah. like, and I mean, that... Dignity, human dignity. That yep. is, with all the material, with all the cultural losses, human dignity is what was lost here. Yeah. Ramona also suffered from emotional trauma. She would say, there's a difference between being alone and being lonely. That was lonely. 
The next person whose story I'm going to share is April Ignacio, and the sources that I used for her story were NPR and Native News Online. So April Ignacio of the Tohono O'odham Nation uh, was the latest in five generations. Sorry, my notes skipped around. Oh, yeah, my notes. This, did this is what happens when I'm reading on my phone. Um, was the latest in five generations of boarding school attendees and survivors. On the Road to Healing tour, where the Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland of the Pueblo of Laguna Nation, traveled across the U.S. to hear testimony from boarding school survivors, April stood to testify at the Gila River Indian community near Phoenix, Arizona. She stated, quote, They call me April Ignacio, and I am providing testimony on behalf of my family. Oh. She was one of many who gathered at this event, stack of papers in hand, ready to tell their stories. Quote, although I understand that this tour is specific to the federal boarding school system, I think it is important to state that the federal government was funding mission church schools and giving Christian religious groups jurisdiction over tribes in the late 1800s until the 1960s. So this part of our family story is about Jose and Placita's children who were sent to Tucson Indian School, which is known to us as Escuela, Spanish for school. Yeah. So they just knew it like school or the school, which is so fucking ominous. Like imagine a horror movie called The School. Done. I, right. I won't watch it. Yeah. It's too scary. No. April's testimony highlighted the intergenerational trauma that the boarding schools inflicted, which still affects survivors and their families and subsequent generations today. And I love that she called us. She's like, hey, I know that this is primarily about the federal, the like federally sponsored boarding schools, but the federal government also funded these religious schools that did the same kind of genocide and cultural erasure. She told the stories of her grandmothers and the abuses they suffered, which included splitting the tongue of her younger grandmother for speaking her native language. So I know earlier I mentioned that children were not allowed to speak their their native language. Yeah. And this could be the consequence of that. Um, Yeah. This next quote is kind of rough. Skip ahead about 15 seconds if you don't want to hear it. Hear that based on my preview. Quote. My younger grandma was a good storyteller. She was funny, beautiful, and liked to make people laugh. As she told it, she was caught speaking in Odham, trying to comfort these children, trying to make them laugh so they could forget about being sad. The missionaries heard her and took out clothespins to teach my younger grandma a lesson. She talked about how it made everything worse and she sat at her desk for hours with blood and saliva overflowing across her hands and dress. What, what was the quote from your story? Like, tell me Christians, who, is, who are the bloodthirsty ones? Or like, when will we stop yeah, suffering, we'll at, stop your suffering hands? at your hands? Yeah. The next story, uh, the next account I'm going to reference is June Marie Holiday Wanaka. Uh, and the resource I used for her was NPR. June Marie Holiday Wanaka of the Navajo Nation also spoke at the same event that April did, having driven seven hours to attend. 
June had been taken to one of the boarding schools at six years old in the 1950s. They were so little. These are like kindergartners, first graders. Can you fucking imagine? No, I don't want to. I I know a nine-year-old who like. Yeah. She, I mean, she, she couldn't move without through this system without being disciplined. No. And the discipline is so awful. Like, yeah. and these are babies. Yeah. They don't know better. Before leaving home, her cousin told her, quote, you're going to get picked on. I want you to learn how to fight. Because a lot of these children, they had older siblings, cousins, neighbors, relatives who had gone through this and would try to give them advice. And it wasn't advice on like. Oh, pay attention to your homework. It was like, here's how you're going to fucking survive. Here's how you're going to get out of there alive. As June recalled, quote, I fought to live each day as she battled against other students and abusive teachers, quote, and I have scars in my heart and my mind. Telling her story was cathartic for or telling their story was cathartic for survivors like June, who said, quote, it brought me peace to know that it was finally spoken out. And when we talk about trauma, when we talk about traumatic events, the silence, the shame, the not talking about it is such a common theme. Yeah. And talking about it can be so therapeutic, can be so cathartic. It makes it feel less shameful. It makes it feel less taboo. And also, you open yourself up to other people who are like, I went through something very similar or like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And then you feel so much less alone. Legacy. Um, Sorry, sorry. Before I get to this, um, there wasn't, there was another account um, that I did not include in my notes. Uh, I primarily, because we're a women's history podcast, I only include, include accounts from women. Uh, There was an account from a man who detailed, serious sexual abuse to both boys and girls um for the purposes of this podcast I did not include it but I just want to be very clear that is how far this kind of abuse went that is what these children suffered through and I don't want to gloss over it um but just for this specific format and I'll I'll include the resource links to all the articles I used in the notes and you can find that information there legacy According to the U.S. Department of the Interior website, quote, in 2021, Secretary of the Interior Deb Haaland, who is a Pueblo of Laguna, announced the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative, a comprehensive effort to recognize the troubled legacy of federal Indian boarding school policies with the goal of addressing their intergenerational impact and to shed light on the traumas of the past. And when I first read this, I was like, Okay. Yeah, you're like, mm. Deb ha- Deb Halland is the first Indigenous person to serve as a cabinet secretary and has worked to begin the journey of healing and accountability. Good. So she is, okay. like, like she's... It's her heritage. She's not ticking a box. Yeah. She's very, she's very passionate about this. I'm, I didn't look too deeply into her, but I have a hard time imagining that she has in some way not been affected by this yeah. or her, her family like said, or her it's, ancestors. It's her heritage. Like, oh, I also have a hard time believing that this kind of thing would happen had there not been an indigenous woman behind the wheel of that, that position. So this resulted in a report over 100 pages long, which included information about abuses, identification of children, 
and locations of burial sites. Advocates are still working to identify burial sites, victims, and to reunite them with their families. So like if you're a Patreon member and you heard my episode about the the Bon Secours mother and baby home and how Ireland is having to reckon with these mass burial sites and trying to identify who these children are, who their families are, and trying to return them. In the United States, we are very knowingly being faced with the same situation, except I don't think we're giving it the same significance. I... Yeah. I don't know, like so much of what I've learned about the these boarding schools and what's happening now has been through my own digging yeah. versus hearing about it on the news. Like I've maybe heard, like seen an article here or there, but that's one, probably because of like what I generally search for. Like I do a <laughs> yeah. lot of history reading, you know what I mean? But even then, like, yeah, they're very, it's like very short articles. It's nothing in depth. It's nothing like, here's all this information. Here's like this thing. It's more like a side piece of like... The, the schools and what was going on there, if you couldn't understand the, if you couldn't understand Ireland's mother and baby homes, how everyone kind of knew what was going on and there was just this apathy, that is exactly what was going on here. And me and Kelly's generation, we're just discovering it because we have that privilege that yeah. this did not affect our families. It did not affect our ancestors. We're having the privilege to be shocked and disgusted by it versus growing up with, yeah, that's yeah, life, you know, it's, it's and, terrible. So, I, I mean, it's just, it's so important that we continue to acknowledge this, that we continue to support those advocating for the return of children, fucking children to their families. Right. I hash, you know, like the right wing co-opted that hashtag save the children. And I'm mm-hmm. like, what about these children? Tell me. Yeah. The work is just beginning. Countless lives and our country as a whole has been irreparably changed by the government led and supported genocide of indigenous communities. While there are those who argue that the sins of the past are not our fault, the truth is that their consequences are our responsibility. We can look at the villains of the past and do better, be better, and improve our country's present and future rather than perpetuating the harm done. I want to end this with a quote from Ramona Charede Klein who also testified before Congress with many other survivors in regards to the Indian boarding schools. Quote, I think about the destruction, the destruction that boarding schools have had and how much talent the United States has lost. And that quote really struck me because with all of this hate, with all of this ignorance, with all of this sticking your he- our heads in the sand, we are hurting ourselves. I want to end this. W- uh, oh, sorry. I already read that paragraph. <laughs> My you can fuck read it ups. again. It's fine. It's, it's wor- it bears repeating. So um, 
I, I always say an article about like, here's what's really fucked up that doesn't yeah. include a how you can make it a little less fucked up. So I did include if you want to support the advocacy and healing work of indigenous people, you can donate to the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, the link of which I will be putting in the show description. And they're based out of Minneapolis, which just made me really Aww. happy because Minnesota. Also, if you don't want to just like donate, if you're like a swag queen like me, they have a ton of merch. Do they? They do. And um, if I hadn't spent so much fucking money on my East Coast trip, I maybe, but you know, I would have bought something already, but I might be budgeting. Like I, I, I donated, but I might be budgeting some merch into my, uh, my December budget. Your December budget. Or perhaps... We holiday need a, gifts we need a budget for uh trips oh god fucking i cannot handle i can't manage there's so much there's so much i want to do there's so much i need to do but yeah i mean seriously i it's not sexy Mm-mm. it's not performative it doesn't feel fun like doing a fundraising car wash But donating money to causes and to advocacy groups who understand the issue and who are already doing the work is one of the best ways that you can help. I hate to say it, but a lot of these organizations, they run on donations, they run on money. And if they don't have the money, they can't do the work. And I'm not, I'm not expecting you to go out and hold up a sign in front of your capital, your, your state capital, but just donate five bucks, one dollar. I, I don't care how much. Yeah. Just something. It's, it's huge. It's so huge. And if even one person donates other than me and Kelly from this episode, it, it's going to be worth it. Yeah. Even just sharing these stories. And there are so many more to be told. These are just the ones that I picked for today. Mysterious. Hey, Emily. Sad. <laughs> I mean, sad, but also like just the way you said it was like, yeah. there's more to come. It sounds like <gasps> there's always more. <laughs> Emily. What are you thankful Don't for? Don't you fucking ask me that we, question. We can skip it this time. No, no. Cause I, th- I, we we started the thankfulness thing kind of on accident. I think we like ended one of our first episodes on like a bummer note. And I was just like, how do we bring this back up for being sad? And, and I now think, you torture me with it every episode. You know what? I'm I don't even know if anyone listens way. to this. I I don't really fucking might be a care. Po- this might be a pointless exercise. The, this might be self care. Yeah. This might be self care because honestly, it's like after gratitude journaling, after reflecting on some of these stories, it's really helpful to think of what I can be thankful for as an individual. Because sometimes all I can do is be thankful for what I have, and then inf- try to influence my immediate sphere for the better. Like Sarah, I'm not going to fucking change the way the federal government works in my lifetime, but I can try and help those around me. I can try and support causes that are important to me in the small way that I can. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I am really thankful. I just got to do like a little East coast tour of Philadelphia, New York and Boston. 
And I got to fulfill a couple of lifelong dreams by visiting the Mütter Museum and Eastern State Penitentiary because I am a spooky bitch down to my core. And I had a fella who was totally on board with doing that with me. And I kept waiting for the moment where he's like, we got to fucking go. No, I'm done. We're like, I'm hitting the eject button. And he was just so, I really admire how he's able to find the, the value in almost anything, you know, even something that he may not have chosen for himself. He's able to find the value, the story, the education, the experience in it. Or even just the like, hey, this is making my partner happy, so I'm just going to be happy and go along with it. Yeah, and I was I was so thankful for that because I kind of kept waiting for the, the meltdown, the red button to be pushed, the, you know. Because that's what you got used to. Yeah, but it was... It was amazing and that I was able to have discussions with him about what we were what we were seeing and what we were learning about. And it was it was really incredible. And I'm very thankful for that. I'm very thankful that he understands he is dating a spooky bitch and that he has accepted that (laughs) and embraced it, dare I say. Kelly, what are you thankful for? Kelly, Victorian accent. Kelly, what are you thankful for? Please don't tell me it's a Victorian accent. I don't know what that is. That's um Victorian esque accent. That's like a Victorian esque accent. God damn it! British high society. British high society on helium. Yeah, and crack, and whatever other drugs they were mixing with wine and saying would cure them or make them skinny or make their butts big or whatever they were looking to do at the time. <laughs> speaking, okay, while you're thinking of what you're thankful for, speaking of which, when I, saw, when I went to the Mirror Museum, they had two skeletal specimens. One, standard. The other, corseted. Nice. Oh, Horrifying. Yeah. It changes your bone structures. Horrifying. It's even like, worse on your organs. Your ribs are supposed to be like a triangle where they get wider at the bottom. They're not supposed to be an egg. Yeah, your your rib your ribs start more tapered and then they get wider as they get further down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's that's right, Kelly. Was, Feel your actual <laughs> ribs. Stick your hands into your ribs. Feel around there. In don't my trust brain, me. They it, it was like I don't know. I don't know what they were like. But, but yes. the corseted ribs were like an egg, where they bowed out in the center a bit, and then they just pinched at the bottom. Oh yeah, I mean you should look at like a picture of organs under a corset. It's I organs did. are not. I know, but I'm I'm telling our audience. Oh okay, because your organs are not where they're supposed to be. Is is the nice polite way of saying it, and like. Oh, yeah, no, no. There's not a lot of no. room in there. Corsets were bad. Oh, I, I think I did my Fatal Fashions, Hearst Rehappenings mm-hmm. episode, and it just made me, like, very sensitive of my insides and my feet. And I'm thankful that I don't have to wear a corset. God. Um, I mean, tight lacing is something st- people still oh, yeah. engage in to extremes. 
it's not as common and it's not considered kind of the, the standard fashion practice, but there are some people, if they want to donate their body to science, I mean, maybe a really, really interesting example of tight lacing. Yeah. I'm thankful that I, I get to, I'm finally like what I am, like what I always wanted to be as a kid for Halloween in that I am like, Wookie? no, <laughs> I am that, like I was that house this year that like kids were genuinely excited when they were walking away from my house. And I'm like, yes. Cause I was like, I, I always growing up, I'm like, I want to be one of those houses that kids want to come back to the next year. Like we don't go all out. We don't have a ton of decorations. But this year we did like full size candy bars and Pokemon cards. And oh, they were a big hit. We had like sixty kids. Everyone else I've talked to, are you to, fucking kidding me? That's like the reaction I've had to everyone else because everyone else I've talked to, they're like, we've had we had like five kids. I'm like, are you kidding? We almost like we had to turn our light off at eight thirty because we only had three candy bars left. I beat my all time record. Of eight kids oh. with nine. And I ha- I do fistfuls of candy because I've got full size, so much. Although, um, so I was watching, I was watching my friend's baby Jay while mm. she took Q yeah, out trick or treating around my neighborhood. I introduced him to Avatar The Last Airbender because I deeply care about his future. Yeah. Um, but she ended up getting Pokemon cards and she shared them mm-hmm. with a bunch of the adults. So I have a bunch of like spooky Pokemon cards. And actually, the first trick-or-treaters I got, mom was a Pokemon trainer with the Ash hat. One of the do- the oldest daughter was an Eevee, which I was like, oh my God, that costume's so awesome. And she's like, I thought about being a Glaceon. And I'm just like, you're such a nerd and I love you. And then the littlest daughter was Vanellope from Wreck-It Ralph and the dad was Wreck-It Ralph. I'm like, that's cute. You fucking nerds are doing it right. And I was so excited. And then they were excited. They recognized what they all were. And apparently they were handing out Pokemon cards around the neighborhood to other trick-or-treaters. Oh, so that's my cute. so so my my friends are got got those and then I got them and I have them and I'm like, how do I properly display this? <laughs> but yeah, so I'm just I'm thankful that like I have the opportunity to do that to make other people's days to make kids days like some of the little kids were just super cute and like the parents were all super appreciative and yeah it just it feels good because I know we get a lot of trick-or-treaters and I know that that isn't financially feasible for everyone full-size fucking candy bars one of those is not Costco one of those is not financially feasible for me (laughs) but you know like it just it just felt good to like Something I wanted to do when I was a kid, I can now do. And, like, that just feels good for me and for other people. Can I tell you what my one of my favorite trick-or-treater memories, like, as an adult was? Yeah. We were, so I was living here, and we were handing out candy, and this group of kids comes up, and all the other kids say, trick-or-treat, and this one random little girl go sticks out her whole arm, points at me and goes, you. (laughs) Do you remember that? Because she was a school ager at the daycare where I used to work. And I would tell her like, she's like, where do you live? And I'm like on the moon. And I like commute with a rocket. And like, I just, I just spouted off bullshit. And she's like, I knew you didn't live on the moon. You live here. And then 
every time she saw me at the daycare after that, she would just go, she would do the point and go, you, and then I would do it back to her. I'm like, oh, you're trick or treat kid. Because I don't remember the yeah. first time I met her. I remember her from Halloween on. That's funny. Yeah. But yeah, like, I don't know, like, we've all, we always get a lot of comments about how we hand out our candy, too, because we have, we have a storm door. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we just take the glass out of the storm door. <gasps> so we don't actually have to open, like, we open our main door, but we can leave the storm door closed. That's actually and super yeah, like, nice. So many people are like, that's super smart. And then I, I always lay my head, I'm like, yeah, but our storm door doesn't actually properly latch. That's why our dogs <laughs> escape. And that, that's the other thing we learned pretty early on from, like, living here is, like, we we make sure the dogs can't get to the door. Mm-hmm. Because one of the first years we had trick-or-treaters, the dogs, like, ran it. They couldn't get outside. Like, we were there, but they, they ran at the door, and the trick-or-treater ran away because they were afraid of dogs. Oh, and we, were, we felt really bad. Baby. So um, since then, we either, like, we've put one year we put them in the bedroom, one year... We just, like, locked them upstairs this year because we have, like, the gate downstairs for Tiny Pug. They all just stayed downstairs, even though we were upstairs. So my my first group of trick-or-treaters, the, the Pokemon Wreck-It Ralph crew, they arrived a lot earlier than I thought they would. Um, and I was, I was watching Baby Jay, and he's walking now, oh. which is... An entirely different game. Yep. So I so I went to the door. My chihuahuas are barking. And, you know, I can push them back. But then he's walking up to the door. And I'm like, oh, my God. This <laughs> is entirely too much. I can handle it. And so I, like, I yell through the screen. I'm like, just one second. I grab the dogs. I put them upstairs. And I open the door. And then Baby Jay is starting to walk out. And I just, like, grab his shirt sleeve so he can't go out any further. And he's standing there like... Are we making friends? Like, he's so sweet. And I'm just like, hey, sorry, my dogs are stupid. <laughs> but they were in their little skeleton hoodies, so they were seasonally appropriate. That's super cute. Yeah. One of these days I should dress up as David as pumpkins, and they're my little, like, skeleton B-boys. There you go. Yeah. I'm glad you had a really good Halloween. I cannot fucking believe you had 60 kids. That's wild. It's pretty par for the course for us. I think it's just like the neighborhood we live in. One, because like with the connecting street, we're a D. We're not a circle. We're a D. (laughs) I want the D. Um, And I think there's a lot of young families. Yeah. So I think that's why. Yeah. Q, Q kind of gave me the the update on the trick-or-treating situation in my neighborhood, and she was, pretty, she was pretty pleased, but I live on a busier street, so I don't think a lot of people come on to my block. Right, and I think that's, like, a combination of we have a lot of young families, and I think we have a lot of, like, we have that mix of, like, young families and people that are still home to hand out candy. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Because, like, that's the other thing, too, is, like, a lot of our groups were bigger groups. We almost... There was only like one group of three kids. Everyone else was like four or five. I'm just really thankful that I didn't run out of candy and that I don't have to buy full-size bars. <laughs> I choose to buy full-size bars. Oh, you choose to buy full-size bars. Plus then I got a full-size Snickers. Pinkies up. Well, that's why we stopped when we had three candy bars because we're like, we haven't had a group like smaller than four people in like an hour. Yeah. So Can you imagine being like one of you has to split this like fucking almond joy and they're like, I would rather die. Right. I don't buy Almond Joy. Ew, nasty. I know someone who likes Almond Joy, and I'm like, that's an incorrect choice that you yeah. can fucking make. Good yeah, for you. But 
one box of like full size like chocolate candy bars, and then one one box of like full size like the fruity stuff. So like Starburst, Skittles, Starburst, and I'm pretty sure the sour Skittles were the first things gone. And that's I was like, so Damn interesting. It, I like sour Skittles. Damn it. I always buy fruity stuff because that's my favorite. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to eat all this extra candy, I'm going to enjoy it. I'm a chocolate girl. If I was buying for me, I would just buy straight Dove dark chocolate. But I don't think kids like dark chocolate. So. Well, they can suck it. They're getting free candy. Mike just tried to fall over for no reason. It, it wasn't even Navi's fault because Navi's over there. It also wants full-size candy bars. No, it apparently wants, like, my boobs. It's like, Mirror. I also want your boobs <laughs> and full-size candy bars. Sorry, I ate the remaining. Well, I ate two of the remaining three. There's two Snickers and one Milky Way, and I ate the Snickers. Oh, can I have the Milky Way? No, Justin ate the Milky Way. Damn him! <laughs> I knew you getting married was gonna fuck me someday! <laughs> It's also been like a week since Halloween. This is why marriage is death to women. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to <laughs> Whining About Her Street, who does love men. Uh, like us on Facebook at Whining About Her Street, Instagram at WAHPAD. Our website is whiningaboutherstreet.com, where you can find our sweet ass merch. You can also find a link to our Patreon, uh, where you can donate for as little as $1 a month. You can also find our Buy Me a Coffee, where you can buy a bottle of wine for $5 one time, and we'll match the wine to your name or where you live or something. Or recommendations, or maybe some very generalized... Something. Yeah, some very... We're going to get the red yarn out. We're going to make some connection boards. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. It's going to get real Charlie Kelly. It's going to be great. It's gonna, we're going to call it a murder board, even though we're not murdering anyone. We're going to call we're it murdering a... murdering the wine. Wine murder board. <laughs> Whining about murder. Thank you for joining us. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. Have an empowered day and don't murder anyone. Bye. Bye. But seriously, don't murder anyone. Unless I like super and then just pee on their grave just pee on their grave grave. don't murder them just wait till they die yeah and then pee on their grave that's called natural justice yeah okay